there's a bit of controversy uh, online this past week. I'm always pretty skeptical of online controversies. Seems like any kind of fringy nut uh, can uh, can represent the opinions of nobody but themselves, but then still post something on the internet and everybody loses their mind. And and I think maybe a little bit of that happened this past week. Uh, it seems that Starbucks uh, Starbucks issued their Christmas holiday cups this past week. And uh, wait for it. The cups are red. Um, I know, I'm, I'm really upset about this too. Um, the cups are red. And, uh, and I guess the issue is that Starbucks used to have like generic holiday messages on their uh, red holiday cups. They had kind of Christmassy designs. But uh, in an attempt to be open or inclusive or something like that, uh, they got rid of explicit references to Christmas on their cups. And so now the cups are just red. And uh, of course, for some people, this is, this is the latest sign of something bigger. Uh, it's not just the red cup. It's, it's the decline of Christianity in the public sphere. So no prayers in front of public school classrooms, no Ten Commandments at the local courthouse. Right? Our, our culture is shifting. And there's this growing sense, and I think it's probably an accurate one, that the days of nativity scenes being printed on our coffee cups and uh, people giving Christmas greetings in every store, those days aren't over, but I think those days are declining. And so I think to some of us who, who've grown up with, uh, like I've said this before, like with the, the Ten Commandments on TV every Easter Sunday night, uh, or who have grown up uh, and have never known a U.S. president who didn't claim to be a Christian. I think for us, this, this new world of plain red cups, is, uh, it's strange. It's surprising. And I think it represents something that we feel like we're losing. It was... Uh, it was interesting for me this week to be studying 1 Peter during the Red Cup controversy. Uh, as I mentioned this earlier, Peter is writing to a church in the very early days of Christianity. And this church has been enduring persecution for their faith. Uh, and we're not sure like, what the persecution is all involved, but it's, it's a major theme of the letter. It's in the beginning, it's in the middle, it's in the end. Uh, and Peter has a lot of advice about how to suffer well for your faith. There's this idea that you can suffer badly for your faith and you can suffer well for your faith. And, and the first thing he says in our section today is he says, don't be surprised. And don't think it's strange when you suffer for your faith. And I think that for most Christians, Peter's comment here would be met with something like, duh, um, persecution is such a commonplace part of the Christian experience throughout so much of history and today throughout so much of the world that I think most Christians would read Peter's words and they'd be like, yeah, sure, of course, we suffer for our faith. From uh, Egypt to Babylon and Assyria persecuting the Israelites 
and then the Jews and the Romans persecuting Christians. Uh, Suffering for your faith has been a part of the story of God's people pretty much since the beginning. And of course, it continues today. We talked about this a bit last week um, on Persecution Sunday. I I, I read this past week that uh, in, in 1990, there were 1.2 million Christians in Iraq. And today there's somewhere around 200,000. So in 25 years, 80% of Christians have either left or or been killed. Uh, I read about uh, an unauthorized church in China. So in China, there there is a legal church in China, uh, but there are state restrictions on what that church can teach. So they can't teach the whole Bible, but... They can teach most of it. Uh, and then there, there are other churches that teach the whole Bible, and they're called house churches. And they actually vary in size. Some of them are, are quite small, uh, especially like out, out further out of the cities. But in, in the bigger cities, sometimes they can get a little bit bigger. And, and there's a story about one of these churches trying to, to purchase a building. And, uh, and not so surprisingly, they, they were denied uh, the ability to, to buy this building. But then all of a sudden, all their leaders were arrested. And they're still being detained. And, and members of the church have been, over the last few years, picked up and they've been uh, arrested. They've been fined. Um, this is happening right now in Beijing, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the world. And, of course, there's more stories from more places. And uh, if, you, if you're familiar with what's going on, it's, it's a pretty bleak picture around the world. And, and it made me wonder this week, like, what, what would happen if a Christian in China or Iraq heard about our coffee cup problem? Um, I wonder if they would not say, hold on a minute, uh, the most powerful corporations in your country have been promoting Christian messages for most of the last 50 years? Hold on, you're saying your country doesn't actively arrest and harass and fine you, but they actually give you tax breaks for church expenses? Talk about surprises. Talk about finding something strange. And that's the world we live in. In, in West Michigan 2015, our coffee cups are red. Uh, I think I read this summer they, they removed a plaque with a Bible verse from a local park. And, you know, it feels like something is happening. But it also feels grossly inappropriate to even mention the coffee cups and the Bible verse plaques in a world where Christians in China are right now in jail and Christians in the Middle East are right now dead because of their faith. And so we know that 1 Peter 4 speaks to Christians in Iraq and in China, but does it have anything to say to us and our red cups? Well, the first thing we might wonder after reading this section is we might wonder, are, are we missing out on something? So Peter has this interesting perspective on suffering for the faith. So in verse 12, he calls it a, a purifying fire. That, that's the Greek word for painful trial. It's, it's a fire. It's like purios. 
And when Peter uses this word in chapter 4, he also uses it in chapter 1, he sees something good in such fires, in such purios. They purify. I think, I think maybe it could work like this. Um, I think it's possible that you never quite know what matters most to you until you have to choose. So... I think that most Christians would say that their faith is the most important thing to them. Uh, But what happens when that's put to the test? Um, What happens when you go through a purios, like a refining fire? So, you know, you hear about situations where, you know, the company that you work for is doing something unethical, so they're cutting corners, and you know about it. And you know that if you keep your mouth shut, this job pays well. And it's a good career for you. And you also know that if you say something, they'll almost certainly cut you loose. It's kind of a scary choice. But I've also been told it's a clarifying one. Um, When you have to choose, when you have to choose, you begin to see, like, where do my deepest allegiances lie? What's most important to me? And they say that there can actually be joy in that. Joy in realizing that the job that you loved and which you were good at and which paid your bills and and which people respected you for and which you took some pride in, that job and that respect and that pride, it turns out, are things that you can live without. Which is not to say it's easy, right? I mean, Peter calls it a fire. Um, it's not to say it's easy, but it is to say that there is joy in realizing that God can be enough. I think it's freeing. But still, what does it mean that most of us in West Michigan maybe never have felt like we ever had to make a choice like that? Are we missing something? Is it true That you never really know what matters until everything else is taken away. Well, I'll say that I'm not sure it's necessary to lose everything in that way. But I think Peter would say it probably helps. And he calls such trials, he calls them a cause for rejoicing. He says they're an occasion to praise God, which I think sounds kind of crazy to our ears. But he says it a couple times. Uh, Rejoice, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. I think there's two things going on here. Um, First, Peter all along throughout this letter has been comparing the sufferings of the church to the sufferings of Christ. There's this important section in chapter 2 when he talks about enduring beatings and insults just as Christ endured beatings and insults. And Peter says that there is a joy in knowing that we are bearing something like what Christ bore. You know, there's no other God in human history to whom a person can cry out, I'm suffering! And God can reply, I know what that's like. No other God can do that. That's, I think that's a powerful resource for suffering Christians. 
And then second he says, and I think this is really interesting, second he says, if you're suffering for your faith, don't worry about payback. So we've spoken a bunch of times now in the last few weeks about God's promise to set things right, uh, final judgment, to make sure justice is done. And Peter assures these Christians, then he reassures them, and then he reassures them again that uh, Christ will return and his glory will be revealed, which is all just a bunch of different ways to say, uh, God's got this. God has a handle on this. Um, You don't have to worry, God is in control. But one of the most natural responses that we have to persecution, whether it's uh, serious or just kind of trivial, one of the most common responses that we have to persecution is payback. Um, I've been thinking a lot since Friday about how France and perhaps the United States are going to respond to the attacks this weekend. Um, And it would be hard to overstate that the impulse for revenge, even revenge that goes well beyond the demands of justice, the impulse for revenge will be very strong. You already hear people saying, you know, we're, we're going to bomb the hell out of them. And uh, you, know, you hear people saying things like, you know, anybody, anybody looks at us funny in Iraq or Syria, we're dropping bombs. And now, you know, I frankly, I don't expect much outright violence against Christians in West Michigan anytime soon. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised that in coming years there might be more disdain or dislike or maybe loss of privileges. What will it mean for us not to pay back? You know, Peter wants these Christians to abandon any notions of revenge. And so he says, he says not pay back. Instead he says in verse 19, he says, commit yourself to your faithful creator. He's saying, trust God. He created this whole thing. (laughs) He'll get it right in the end. Trust God. And then he says, continue to do good. And at first when I read that, I thought what he meant, you know, because the subtext here is like, God's returning, he's going to judge the earth. And I kind of thought, you know, continue to do good meant like, follow the rules, people. Like, he's coming back. Um, I actually, I don't think that's what he means by do good in this section. I think he means like, keep doing good to others. Be a good person. So there's this guy who made this video about the red Starbucks cups and don't look it up or anything, but um, he tells us that we should all trick Starbucks. So... If, if you've gone to Starbucks, you know that like, when you come in, they ask you for your name, and then they write it on the cup because they're all different drinks, and they want to make sure the, cup, the drink goes with the right person. And so they'll write your name on the cup. And, and he says that when they ask you what your name is, you should tell them that your name is Merry Christmas. Um, and he says that'll trick them. And then he says that we should all wear uh, T-shirts with Jesus printed on them. He says because that'll offend them. Peter says, when you face persecution, trust God and do good. 
I take that to mean don't trick people. Uh, don't look for ways to offend them. I, I think the gospel offends plenty just, just as it is. Rather, Peter seems to be saying that our greatest witness in the face of people who mock us or criticize us or who take away our nativity scenes, our greatest witness is not in fighting back. Our greatest witness is continue to do good. That's an act of trust, right? Not to resort to, to tricks and counter-offensives, but rather, as someone once said more eloquently than me, to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And I think that idea is reinforced in this middle section, verses 14 and 15. He's talking about, like, if you suffer for Christ, you're blessed. But then he's really careful. And he's like, but of course, if you suffer for other reasons, <laughs> like crime, or he uses the word meddler, which isn't a crime at all. Uh, a meddler is mostly just an annoying person. It's, it's a gossip. It's a busybody. Um, he's saying, if you suffer for the gospel, great. But if you suffer for being a jerk, like, you're on your own. And we need to know the difference. Right? We need to learn how to suffer graciously. To be people who reject the impulse for revenge and who just do not waver in doing good. You see, there's this problem. There's this problem that creeps up in the history of the church. And it's, an ex it's a very serious problem. And that is that often when a group of Christians or really any kind of people, but including Christians, when they stop being persecuted somewhere, and then they gain some kind of power, almost every time, they start persecuting others. So after Christianity became legal in the Roman Empire, every other religious group started being systematically eliminated by so-called Christian armies. After the Protestant Reformation, Christians killed Christians. So in places where the Catholics were, were in power, they killed Reformers. And in places where Reformers were in power, they killed Anabaptists. This is an ugly history. It goes right up to our country. When the human heart is finally freed of persecution and gains some power, the temptation for revenge is just about irresistible. And I think that's why Peter includes this strange quote in verses 17 and 18 about how hard it is for the righteous to be saved and judgment coming for God's family. On the one hand, in that section, he's reassuring these Christians, yeah, yeah, their oppressors will be judged. But he does it in this subtle way, in, in actually like a humbling way. And he says, yeah, yeah, they'll be judged. But don't forget your own sin. He's reminding them here, like even the holiest of us, the most righteous of us, is still this hopeless sinner who can't save himself. He says it's hard even to save the righteous. He's talking to the church. It's like he's saying, before you pass judgment on those who persecute you, before you get on your high horse and start judging others, remember what you were when God called you. 
You're an enemy of God. All of us who are saved are saved not because we were so great or so faithful or so holy. If we are saved at all, we're saved by grace. And grace is the ultimate revenge killer. You've never met a proud person who truly understood grace. So in the face of persecution, whether it's bullets and bombs or merely disgust and insults, let us pray that we will be people of grace. People like our Savior who, when they hurled their insults at him, did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He trusted God. And then he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree so that we might die to our sins and live for what is good. By his wounds we have been healed. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that um, you would be very near to people who endure suffering for their faith. Lord, I pray that you would unite your church across languages and great distance and cultures, um, that we would, uh, we would grieve when they are grieving and rejoice when they are rejoicing, even if the Christians in question seem very far away. Lord, I pray that we would not be forgetful of them in our prayers, but remember them always. And Lord, I pray for us as we endure what sometimes can seem like fairly trivial uh, suffering for our faith. Lord, I pray that we could handle even that with the grace that comes from knowing your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In response, we're going to